Hello and welcome to this download from Blackwell Online. My name is George Miller, and my guest today is Ben Goldacre, scourge of homeopaths, nutritionists, and whole armies of those who practice what he calls bad science. I suggested to Ben that what he was interested in was less the individual practitioners of bad science, entertaining those whose exposure of them is, and more of what they indicate about the general status of evidence-based science in our culture. Yeah, that's right. I mean, uh, you know, the, the people that I look at specifically, like the individual pharmaceutical companies or Patrick Holford, the vitamin pill salesman, or Gillian McKeith, the TV nutritionist, I'm not sure that any of those are individually massively important, although they're all pretty significant, big, sort of multi-million pound operations. But yeah, what's interesting about them is that they teach us about the whole process of how you can tell if a pill works or not, and also the process of how you can distort evidence, how you can misrepresent evidence, or how you can gather evidence in such a way that it is an unfair test of a treatment, which is something that, you know, alternative therapists and, uh, and big pharmaceutical companies uh, have in common. They have pretty much everything in common as far as I'm concerned, but, but um, you know, the, the, the tricks and the techniques that they use are basically identical. I was wondering, I mean, if you think as a species we're not especially well adapted to dealing with evidence, to dealing with causality in a, in a reasoned sort of way, if, we, if we're sort of in a way predisposed towards irrational beliefs, I, mean, I think there are studies which suggest that we, we believe the last thing we heard or we, we attribute causality and, and do, you th do you think that we're sort of, we're hardwired not to find it easy to deal with evidence-based science? Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And uh, in the chapter called, what's it called? Why Clever People Believe Stupid Things. Uh, I, I, I try and review, you know, a, a small section of the literature on, on irrationality. I mean, it's almost trivially true to say it because if it was really easy for us to tell that something quite rare is associated with something else quite rare, or something quite common is associated with something quite common. If it was easy for us to deduce that by taking sort of cautious mathematical samples in our day-to-day -day lives, it would never have been an issue. It wouldn't have been necessary for us to come up with formalised systems for assessing causality. If we're presented with random data, we often think that we can see patterns in it quite erroneously. Um, and, and when we're as flawed on something as basic as, is there actually a pattern here at all, let alone what is the explanation for that pattern, then, then that seems to me to be very strong evidence, strong, a very strong argument for uh, the fact that we need to have you know, specific systems for measuring things and deciding if A causes B or prevents B or is completely unrelated to be. One of my favourite lines in the book is, the plural of anecdote is not data, but that's a very prevalent attitude, isn't it? Again, I mean, it just comes down to that thing of, I don't mind if, if you've got some sort of childish, loopy ideas of your own, but if you're gonna start talking about them, you have to be honest about what your evidence is, you know? And if your evidence is, I reckon, then I'm sort of vaguely disinterested. I think also one thing that's really important is that I have a very different... I think individuals and institutions have very different sets of responsibilities. Um, I mean, I, uh, I'm not surprised that somebody like Gillian McKeith exists who wants to manifest themselves to the world as a great expert and make a lot of money from selling pills and potions and, and sort of making bold assertions, which when you examine the, the evidence for them, it turns out to be really, really quite thin. I'm not surprised there are individual people like that in the world. And I almost don't expect, you know, the entirety of humanity universally to sort of be 
absolutely clear that they won't do things like that. I'm not even sure that behaving like that is necessarily terribly wrong. But I do think that Channel 4, as a broadcasting corporation who, you know, have to apply publicly to get hold of a limited amount of airspace and bandwidth that we allow them to broadcast to the nation, and it, you know, they shepherd ideas into our living rooms. I think they have a very different set of responsibilities. They have an obligation, to my mind, to be much more cautious about the the veracity of the things they bring to the public. So similarly, I'm not surprised that there are individual parents who are worried that MMR causes autism, and I'm not surprised that there are individual academics, or just one really, uh, Andrew Wakefield, who say, you know, I think MMR causes autism on the basis of very, very weak and arguably pretty flawed evidence. I don't think that people like Andrew Wakefield should be legislated against or silenced. I think that the entire British news media, spectacularly misrepresenting the evidence on whether MMR causes autism, is selectively, as I show in the book, only covering evidence which they've found, which they claim is evidence that MMR causes autism, but which actually, when you look at it, it doesn't, often doesn't even exist in the medical literature, and at the same time completely ignoring all the evidence that goes against their favoured hypothesis that MMR causes autism. I think, I think that's bad, because I think, you know, that firstly, they are institutions which we all have higher expectations of than individuals, but also it kind of offends my clear labelling policy. It feels to me like the transaction when I go into a news agent is that I give you 90p in exchange for proceed true facts in a portable format that I can take on the tube. And that's not an expectation I have of Andrew Wakefield, but it is an expectation I have of the Times or the Telegraph, uh, or to a lesser extent, the Mail. And presumably, if rich Westerners want to dose themselves with pills which are no better than sugar pills, you might say, so be it. But when it comes to offering homeopathy to AIDS patients in sub-Saharan Africa, clearly the stakes are higher. I don't really write very much about the sort of the concrete harms of alternative therapies or irrationalities, um, because I don't really, I'm not that kind of sort of histrionic consumer journalist kind of character. And to me, it's, uh, you know, for, for the most part, talking about quacks is really, they're a kind of teaching tool for talking about the basics of evidence-based medicine. I mean, homeopathy really is the perfect tool for teaching how do we do a trial and what are the pitfalls, because it's the perfect example of exactly what you're trying to avoid in evidence-based medicine. Homeopathy is a sugar pill, which appears to perform better than a sugar pill because of cherry-picking the literature, people only quoting the positive studies and ignoring the negative ones because of people doing unfair tests where they're doing tests in a way that, that it's biased structurally so that it's more likely to give a positive result for the homeopathic sugar pill rather than the placebo-controlled sugar pill. And these are problems which happen in all forms of clinical trial and which happen to, a, you know, to an equal extent in, in the pharmaceutical industry's trials except they can't get away with using quite such easy and obvious fudges that the homeopathy literature um, uh, betrays. So, you know, I'm, I'm, you're, it, it's true to say, as you do, that, um, that these things aren't so problematic in terms of the concrete outcomes. But there are situations where it does become more problematic. I mean, locally for us, I think it's problematic that, for example, we spent so long and so much sort of media energy has been expended on looking at very obsessive micro-tinkering of diet as if that was the most important thing you could do for your health. And we've done that at the complete exclusion, really, of, of talking about the other sort of much more significant 
lifestyle risk factors for ill health. I mean, you know, social class is, is the single biggest predictor of health outcome inequalities. And you never really get people talking about that in mainstream media. There's this, to my mind, actually slightly sort of childishly reductionist, you are what you eat, sort of right-wing individualist manifesto. And you get it from your friends. People say, oh, you know, you can say what you like, but I have to walk past this council estate every morning on the way to the tube. And, you know, I see parents feeding their three-year-old children crisps for breakfast. You can't tell me it's not diet. You know, it's got to be diet. That's why they're doing so badly at schools. That's why they're violent. And you go, well, look, you know, I think you'll find it's a bit more complicated than that. So there are the opportunity costs of bullshit, you know. The real causes of health outcome inequality or bad school performance are not to be found in molecules. They're not to be found in the fish oil pills which have been promoted so endlessly in mainstream media. But if you take the exact same kinds of, of nonsense that you see from our Western pill peddlers like you know, pa Patrick Holford, the vitamin pill salesman who I talk about a lot in the book, when you take uh, those sort of slights of hand with evidence and then you put that into a context where it really matters so you're not talking to people about you know this is a cure for you feeling tired all the time or having headaches when you take it as Matthias Raff the South African vitamin pill salesman did to South Africa where he's not actually South African he's, he's European but when you take those ideas to South Africa as he did then you're into a very different ballgame I mean, he started taking out full-page adverts in the South African media saying the end to the AIDS epidemic is here and it's vitamin pills and saying in exactly the same way that Patrick Holford does, our British vitamin pill salesman, uh, it, there's a conspiracy by the pharmaceutical industry and anybody who criticises my vitamin pills is a, is a part of this conspiracy from the pharmaceutical industry uh, and the pharmaceutical industry are trying to poison you with these terrible products. Matthias Rath says in his adverts, uh, you know, why should Africans continue to be killed by, by these antiretroviral drugs? People, on, anti, people on, on taking vitamin pills live twice as long. It's much better than antiretrovirals. Uh, and of course, he did this in a country that was um, probably the worst place you could possibly take that message to. I mean, South Africa, firstly, is a country that's been ravaged by AIDS. I mean, AIDS is actually a very difficult thing to get your head around because it's almost like the opposite of anecdote. 25 million people died, uh, have died so far of AIDS. 3 million people died last year. 300,000 people die every year of AIDS in South Africa. And that's one every two minutes. And I, I don't believe that you've um, been able to mount any kind of emotional response to that sat opposite me on this table because you know, those numbers are so ridiculously, preposterously huge that you just, you don't, you don't get any sort of heaviness in your chest when you hear that. And yet, you know, 1.2 million AIDS orphans in South Africa, 30% of all women presenting at, at uh, antenatal clinics are HIV positive. I mean, it's, a, it's an extraordinary situation. And of course, um, you know, Thabo Mbeki, president of uh, South Africa until very, very, very recently, was an AIDS denialist and fascinatingly he was introduced to uh, many of the basic ideas of AIDS denialism by Matthias Rath's colleague and employee Anthony Brunk who is a barrister in South Africa who boasts in his letter of recommendation to Matthias Rath uh, that it was he who introduced Tabo Mbeki to these basic ideas. Now the South African government in the sort of first 
part of the 21st century variously believed or claimed that HIV was not the cause of AIDS, that antiretroviral drugs were not the most important treatment, were not an appropriate treatment for AIDS. They refused to roll out antiretroviral drug treatments. They refused donations of money to pay for antiretroviral drug treatment, and they refused to accept donations of drugs to give to people who needed them both to treat people who were dying of AIDS and also to prevent maternal transmission. And it's been estimated that between 300 and 350,000 people died unnecessarily during this period just because of a set of stupid ideas.